so today we're going to keep talking about English colonial society. In this episode, we're going to talk about the diversity that was present or wasn't in different English colonial society. We mentioned some in different colonies, but now we're going to investigate the development of the governance of the colonies. Alright, so just a little intro. English colonial society was made up of diverse ethnic groups and individuals who arrived in North America with different goals under different circumstances. We talked about that already in the last episode. Traditions of local self-government also emerged in different colonies during English period of salutary neglect. So what's salutary neglect? Basically, it is when England did not govern the colonies. So the colonies had to kind of govern themselves. So although economic opportunity, religious freedom, self-government came to be colonial traditions embraced by the colonists, not all people came to the English colonies by choice. So we're also going to talk about the Middle Passage and um, the bringing of African slaves over to colonial society. So different things happened in different regions like we talked about in the last episode. So societal characteristics are different in each colonial um, region and colonial period. So at the time, England faced significant unemployment as well as political and religious turmoil. These factors prompted immigrants to leave England and travel to America for new opportunities. So we've talked about how the southern colonies were where most of the money was made because, well, that was where they had the fertile soil. Then mid-Atlantic colonies had great ethnic religious diversity, and the New England colonies were mainly for religion, and also they developed townships and um, ports and things like that. So because of all these different things going on in different places, religion in the colonies also varied by region. So New England had Puritan roots and the foundations of aspects of society were based on that specific belief in certain areas. And there's also not that many towns in the southern colonies so that kind of made formal churches less practical so there's just a little bit difference in each region there's also a difference in voter eligibility even when land ownership was required it was much greater in the colonies than in England land was scarce and expensive in England while more abundant and cheaper in the colonies Thus, a more representative local government in the colonies existed during the early colonial period. The English crown had limited involvement in local government matters in the colonies as long as the mercantilist demands for resources were being met. Basically, if they got their money, they didn't really care. So they didn't actually govern the colonies as long as the mercantilist system was working and they made money. This system of solitary neglect continued until after the French and Indian War in 1763. 
and we'll talk about the problems that it caused, at which time England faced mounting debt and began to seek greater local control over the colonies because, well, they wanted more um, them to do more and more things, like pay taxes and stuff like that, and that's how we get to no taxation without representation and all that stuff that led to the American Revolution, which we'll talk about in later episodes. So, as we discussed before, there are many different colonial cultures represented here. So, various European cultures came to be represented in England's American colonies, beginning with the first permanent settlement at Jamestown in 1607. We've talked about that. 250,000 Europeans migrated to the colonies by the 1700. By the outbreak of the American Revolution, the population of England's colonies in North America was approaching 2.5 million. Most immigrants to the colonies were from England during the early period, but over time, immigrants began coming to America from other European countries. European ethnic groups living in America during the colonial period included immigrants from Scotland, Ireland, Germany, various push factors, meaning what led them to leave their country, led immigrants from these countries to seek opportunity in England's American colonies. Scottish immigrants had easier access to the colonies after the political union of Scotland and England was formalized in 1707. Most of the Scottish and Irish immigrants to America settled in the mountainous backcountry frontier located west of established colonial settlements. The unique speech patterns and folk songs characteristics of the United States Appalachian region can be traced to the Scottish and Irish colonial immigrants who settled there in the decades prior to the Revolutionary War. German immigrants also became popular of England's American colonies during the early period. Germany was divided into small rival principalities whose quest for power led to violence. To finance each principality's defense, the common people living there were taxed heavily and often forced into military service. The strict control that German princes exerted over their lands left the commoners searching for better financial opportunities and autonomy, so they wanted a little more independence. William Penn recruited these disgruntled Germans to immigrate to his new colony of Pennsylvania. After coming to America, the German immigrants reported back to their family living in Europe that there was abundant land, plentiful food, cheap taxes, and no forced military service. And that was the way of life in Pennsylvania. Thus, more Germans arrived in America because it sounded really great to them because it was much better than the conditions that they were living under. The mid-Atlantic colonies came into English possession as already ethnically diverse places. The cultures represented in these colonies included Dutch, Swedish, Finnish, German, Scottish, and French. Because of the diversity beyond English culture was so great, the various groups had to work together and tolerate differences between them. 
Elements of these various European cultures from language, style, food, architecture, all came together to eventually create a basis for a uniquely American culture. Various religious groups also made their way to England's American colonies seeking opportunity for the free practice of their faith. The Puritans, as we talked about in New England, although the Puritans immigrated to the colonies to escape religious persecution, they did not tolerate other religious practice of their own. Maryland was originally established for Catholics to worship freely. Um, that's where we get the Acts of Toleration in 1649. Rhode Island was accepting of all religions, including the followers of Protestant sects, Catholicism, Judaism, and Quakerism. The Quakers, however, settled primarily in Pennsylvania and were also very tolerant of other faiths. The diversity in religions, particularly in Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, meant that no one faith held a majority in those colonies. Therefore, no one religion became the established religion in those colonies. The American tradition of separating church and state was born from this religious diversity in the colonies. The foundation for cultural and religious diversity in the United States was set during the early colonial period with the planning of English colonies that became home to a wide array of immigrants from various countries and religious backgrounds. So now we're going to discuss the Middle Passage. So the Middle Passage was a portion of the transatlantic trade route that brought slaves over. So we're going to discuss the importance of it, why it came to be, and also why um, it's important because of the effects of the Middle Passage. As tobacco farmers and other cash crop farmers prospered in the colonies, they greatly expanded the size of the farms. Because of the resulting need for workers to plant, grow, and harvest the crops, farmers turned to African slaves to fulfill their growing labor needs. The first Africans arrived in Virginia in 1619 during the colonial period. Approximately 250,000 Africans were imported to the colonies. The vast majority of these slaves were concentrated in the agriculturally intensive southern colonies, although all of the English colonies allowed and had slaves during the colonial period. The African slaves who were forced to fill this labor role in the American colonies were brought to North America on crowded and dangerous slave ships along the previously mentioned Middle Passage which, again, is the portion of the transatlantic trade route. The slaves were originally captured through African slave trade within the African continent, then brought to West Africa, the coast, for barter with European slavers. Rum, cloth, weapons, and other manufactured goods from Europe were traded for Africans. Between three and 400 slaves were packed into cargo holds on slave ships bound for North America. Sickness, fear, and brutality was the common experience for slaves on the Middle Passage. 
about two of every ten slaves died during the Middle Passage. There was no single African culture. People brought from West Africa as slaves represented a large number of different cultures. In an effort to control the slaves, slave owners attempted to strip away the cultural identity of their slaves and sought to replace it with the culture of the plantation or region to, to which the slave was brought. However, the physical isolation of slaves from their masters led to the creation of a new blended culture rather than the replacement of the one culture over another. What resulted was a creation of a unique African-American or black culture. Foods such as okra, watermelon, yams, rice, even grits have been attributed to cultural blending of African and European cultures. The practice of blending different African tribes on a single plantation led to the creation of blended language patterns such as Creole in Louisiana and also some coastal languages from the Georgia and Carolinas. Economically, coastal South Carolina and Georgia owed its prosperity to the introduction of rice that was propagated by West African and West Indian slaves. Ironically, it was this same rice production that served as food source for the West Indian sugar plantations whose insatiable labor demands expanded slavery in the European colonies. Architecture is another topic for which African influences can be detected in Americans' development. Slave labor often built the homes and buildings of their American masters. Over time, traces of Africanism found their way into the styles of buildings being constructed. The shotgun home style has been traced to a dwelling style popular in Haiti and even further removed to a style of hot popular among the people of West Africa. Shotgun house is characterized as being narrow and long with front porch in a simplistic style in which the entrance being the short side of the home is different from the European styled homes. So we can see the African influence here. Archaeologists also suggest that some of the buildings, building materials used in Georgia plantations may have African roots. Okay, so now we're going to dig a little deeper into colonial self-government and salutary neglect. So, a little background information. The Catholic monarch James II took the English throne in 1685 and tried to single-handedly rule without parliament. England's Protestant majority was fearful of the new king's unrestricted power. James II also put North American colonies more tightly under his control by revoking charters and combining the New England colonies with New York and New Jersey to form the Dominion of New England, which was to be governed not by colonial assemblies, as it was before, but 
by a governor and council appointed by the king. In 1689, the Glorious Revolution marked the overthrow of James II. He was replaced by the Protestant monarchs King William and Queen Mary, who signed the English Bill of Rights as a condition to their ascent to power. The Dominion of New England was dissolved by the colonies and they returned to their previous colonial arrangement as the news of the Glorious Revolution reached North America. One outcome of the reestablishment of the colonies was the combination of Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth into Massachusetts Colony. The colonies reestablished their local governments that they had before with the transition of English political power at the time of the Glorious Revolution. In 1721, Robert Walpole became the first prime minister in England. His approach to the colonies became known as salutary neglect. He believed that the colonies would become more economically productive if they were not restricted by cumbersome policies that limited the ability to trade, such as the Navigation Acts that we discussed in the last episode. From the 1720s until after the French and Indian War in the 1760s, the colonies were less restricted in their ability to build up their own trade networks and govern themselves locally because of the policy of solitary neglect. As long as England was receiving the colonial resources they needed to maintain production under the mercantilist arrangement, they didn't really care. So there was less oversight by the English crown. The colonies had always been somewhat independent of English control due to the distance. Geographically speaking, it's very difficult to have control when you're an ocean away of someone. The methods of colonial self-government that existed during the period of solitary neglect firmly established the tradition of independence that would later lead to the revolution between the England between England and her colonies. The political structure of each colony by the time of the Revolutionary War consisted of a governor, an elected legislator, the earliest of the elected legislators, the House of Burgesses, had been established shortly after Jamestown's founding. Colonial legislators such as Virginia's had long traditions of making local policies and were made up of locally elected colonists. Taxes were levied by these colonial representatives and established the tradition of local taxation by locally elected representatives. Many New England colonies had town meetings and met regularly for people to vote directly on political issues or public issues. Voting in the colonies was often restricted to only white males who owned at least some land. Even so, this criteria encompassed a much higher proportion of citizens than other countries, meaning more people were able to vote than other countries. Religious restrictions had even been removed from New England colonies voter eligibility by the time of the American Revolution. There was also an expectation that emerged in the colonies that local legislators would be responsible for looking out for the interests of all colonists, not just the wealthy. 
This concept played out dramatically with the events surrounding Bacon's Rebellion in Jamestown in the late 1670s. Former indentured servants had worked off their debt but could not afford land in the township itself. Instead, they had to move far, um, further into the frontier and often face conflict over land with the area's Native Americans. These poor citizens paid taxes and expected the House of Burgesses to provide protections for them, even though they lived further out from the wealthy Jamestown community. Nathaniel Bacon led these poor citizens first against the American Indians and then against the Jamestown elite, including the royal governor, William Berkeley. Bacon's rebellion between the poor frontier colonists and Virginia's colonial government established an expectation in America that the government would work for the good of all citizens, not just the wealthy. The tradition of English colon colonial self-government began early with the Pledge of Majority Rule under the Mayflower Compact and the established of colonial legislators. During the period of solitary neglect, the role of these local assemblies and town meetings expanded. It was not during it was during this time, sorry, that the English government, following the Glorious Revolution, scaled back their political oversight of the colonies as long as economic resources were being provided. So that gave them political autonomy and self-government in the colonies and grew to be an expectation and formed an independent American identity that ultimately led to war between England and her colonies. And we will discuss that in a later episode. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the Great Awakening, and that would be the first Great Awakening. We will later talk about the second. The Great Awakening was a religious movement influenced by the revivals that were sweeping through England, Scotland, and Germany in the 1730s. It spread from Europe to the colonies in the following decade and continued until the eve of the American Revolution. The revival placed an emphasis on individual religious experience rather than the religious experience through church doctrine meaning your actual what you experience the person yourself experience instead of what the church tells you um, in written established doctrine the great awakening challenged established authorities as the colonists questioned the need to follow not only the Church of England, but also the orders of English monarchy and its authority. The idea of the shared struggle that awakening ministers had spoken of was easily transferred to the shared struggle of independence that was beginning to unify the colonies. The Great Awakening was in part a reaction to the Enlightenment which emphasized logic, reason, and stressed the power of the individual to understand the universe based on the scientific laws. Similarly, individuals grew to rely more on a 
personal approach to salvation than church doctrine through a personal understanding of scriptures. Although the Enlightenment was really a movement of intellectual elite, the Great Awakening had stronger appeal across all sections of society in each of the 13 colonies. Ministers such as Jonathan Edwards, William Tennant, George Whitfield began to urge Christians to adopt a more emotional involvement in Christianity through prayer and personal study of the Bible. Their sermons were emotional, appealing to the heart and not just the head. New denominations such as Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians gained members and challenged some of the old established colonial denominations such as the Puritans in New England and the Anglicans in the South. Practicing religion became an emotional experience in addition to an intellectual experience. One of the most famous sermons that typifies the religious fever and emotional nature of the Great Awakening was John Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The sermon urged the congression to repeat, not provoke God, to repent, sorry, not provoke God, who is all-knowing. The American colonies established in New England had been founded on have been founded on religion and had the idea that the government ruled on the basis of the kind of relationship with God and the people, as you can see in the Mayflower Compact. The governance structure of new churches reflected this idea as churches appointed to their own ministers and administrated their own churches. This sense of independence was soon reinforced by the political ideas of John Locke's social contract and also Thomas Paine's emotional appeal for independence, which we will discuss in the next episode.